I think the most important thing is to define your value in the marketplace, like to, to define who your consumer is and the value proposition that you are bringing to the market. Is that clear? Is it unique and different? Is it broadly appealing? Do you have something unique and special that is solving a problem and bringing real value to the market and being crystal clear on that? And then can you make it? And do you have the right margin structure? And then finding what your route to market is and, 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 and slowing down and thinking about all those things and getting all of those right is really, really important. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I'm really excited to have Jeremy Vandervoet on with me today, and he is the CEO of Little Secrets Chocolate. So welcome to the podcast, Jeremy. Awesome. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I'm really happy to have you on to share the story about Little Secrets and also your background. So why don't we start with that? Why don't you tell us a little bit about you, and then we'll get to how you got to this to be the CEO of Little Secrets. Yeah, that's great. You know, I've been in this category and now going on almost 20 years. You know, it starts way back. I went to business school at UCLA. Actually, before that, I did banking and consulting and loved it and hated it. But I found my way into brand management through business school at UCLA. And and in 2005, joined Nestle and kind of grew up in big CPG and learned a tremendous amount, had eight or nine different roles there. But all in the brand management side of, of the business, I did work in sales for a year with Target and Walmart and all that. My last job at Nestle was running the chocolate division. In 2018, I was uh, I was a director of marketing for the chocolate division for Nestle, like Butterfinger and Crunch and all those great brands. And the company at the time decided to close the office and move to Virginia and sell the chocolate division all at the same time, the U.S. chocolate division, to be clear, which eventually became Ferrera, bought the business. So that whole transition left me at a big pivot point of, do I go down that path or do I, you know, do I venture out and try something new? At that time, I decided I really wanted to get into the small growth startup, you know, the better for you side. And I moved out here to Boulder, Colorado and joined Little Secret Chocolates. Was that the reason you moved to Boulder? Correct. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's been a wild ride. But yeah, that was a big, big kind of life, you know, life decision moment from a career standpoint. I have three kids and decided that if I was, it was 40, 41 at the time. And if I was ever going to make a move like that, I wanted to, I don't want to live life with any regrets. I I wanted to learn and grow and develop myself. And that, and that presented an opportunity to do that. That's a cool thing to do. Do you like it there? Like, has it been a good transition from a lifestyle perspective? It's been amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just been like opening up so many doors from a, for just for family, for outdoor activity, mountain biking and skiing and all that kind of great stuff. Colorado is gorgeous. Yeah. And it's a great hub for um, emerging brands right now. And and yeah, exactly. There's just been such a great community here of small to medium sized food and beverage startups with, with, you know, with the venture capital. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a big shift in a lot of ways. So talk about that a little bit. So you came to Little Secrets and at what stage was the brand at when you joined them? Yeah, it was a very small brand. It was only a couple million dollars in revenue at the time kind of this probably went from one of the world's largest chocolate companies to one of the world's smallest chocolate yeah. companies. 
had a kid and moved all in the same year. So that, so that was a 2018 was a wild, wild year and yeah, quite a bit of change. Wow. And talk about what it was like to go from a really big, I mean, you were at the biggest brand pretty much, right. To a small brand. So there's probably a ton of, I'm sure that's why they wanted to have you an incredible amount of experience that you could bring to bear here, but also there must've been some really big differences for how you dealt with every single issue. Yeah. Basically when you go from a big company to a small company like this, a lot of people have done this, but it's the category and the insights and the consumer, a lot of that's the same, mm-hmm. or there's a lot of learnings that you can take with you that apply. So maybe the natural consumer is different than the conventional, but you can, you can get your head around that really quickly and how you manufacture and make chocolate is really helps and learns, but then like literally everything's different from how you, how the team manages and works and how you go to market, how you work with vendors, cash flow. Literally every single piece of the business is different and really. Yeah. yeah. Did you learn it as you were going? Did you already know from other places? But, you know, because when you left Nestle, you were in a really different kind of role where you didn't have to think about all those things, right? Yeah. What you don't realize, what I took for granted is that you don't think about, even though you work with operations and finance and sales quite, you know, quite significantly, I, I, I would say, you don't really think about those functions in terms of the day-to-day and like even finance and cash flow and things like that. You don't think about those things in the same way you have to think about them at a startup. And so it feels like you're on a high dive and you just kind of get pushed off and you fall <laughs> deep in and you got to sink or swim and there's no cavalry coming to help you. That's the other big difference is when you have a problem at a big company, usually there's operations improvement teams that come in and help. There are sales people that come in and help you with Walmart and so on. When you are struggling or dealing with a problem or a challenge at a small company, you need to figure that out very fast. And usually you don't have a lot of resources to do it. I mean, that must be tricky. That's where the growth and the learning comes from, for sure. Yeah. 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 How? So talk about some of that. Like, What was your first biggest sort of, wow, this is going to be harder than I thought? Or was it harder than you thought? Maybe it wasn't. It is way harder than I thought okay. and more exciting than I thought too, at the same time. It's a great, great question. I think you should ask that question to every single person you have on this show. Cause I'd be curious to hear what other people say, but basically ours was all related to operations and supply at first. And it's something that I didn't think about because when you see the product on shelves and in the market and you, and you talk to a company, you don't completely understand the dynamics of maybe how it's co-manufactured or, or where it's made and some of the challenges with the equipment or the team or people that you're working with to make a product. And so long story short, the company was launching our crispy wafer line or our, you know, our better version of a Kit Kat. Mm-hmm. And the co-manufacturer that we were lever- you know, using at the time had a lot of challenges. And so we, you know, very in, in very short order in my first six to 12 months of working at Little Secrets, we needed to basically move suppliers and change suppliers in the middle of a product launch. Wow. And that's very, very, very difficult, you know, to, you know, to maneuver. And I was coming in from a marketing brand management standpoint to try to grow the brand. And it was like, hold on time out. We got to fix our operations. And that was all on you, obviously. As no, I mean, yes, I, I helped lead a lot of that. Yeah. And, you know, our, our team, it was all hands. It's really all hands on deck. Anytime you have, Anytime you have a really big challenge like that, you you basically call timeout and you're like, okay, as a company, we're going to figure this out. 
yeah. and, you, and then you divvy up the work and, and then you go figure that out. And also must've been really expensive to do that in the middle of a, you scrap and throw away packaging and you, and you throw away raw materials and you are out of stock and you have delays and, and it's, it's a very expensive process to change co-manufacturers midstream, especially when you're growing and launching a product like that. We are also changing packaging and launching new flip. And then I think we had a couple unforced errors, as they say, where, you know, we were trying to also launch products at the same time. If I could do it all over again, I would have slowed down the amount of change that we were doing. And from a commercial standpoint, in terms mm-hmm. of going to market and not launching new new items or selling in new items while we're switching co-manufacturers, that's probably the big learning is slow down the pace of change and get things right before you scale. Yes. That makes a lot of sense, but it sounds like it wasn't even a possibility for you at the time. You know, when you're in it, yeah. it's very different when you step back and you look at things a year or two or three, Yeah. or you're looking at things from 50,000 feet and it's, and it's very obvious when yep. you're in, in the moment and you have investors and you have customers that want products and you have things that are actually, you know, and it's hard to know always in the moment what the right decision is both to balance the commercial side of the business as well as the operation side. You, a lot of startups make a lot of mistakes and we certainly have made our share. We've had a lot of successes too. And, but yeah, that's, that was one of my big ones is, is slow down, sequence it and get it right before you scale. How, um, how big is your team right now? We are at seven or eight people right now. Yeah. That's awesome. And growing, I assume. Yeah, we're growing. You know, we've moderated our growth to balance our cash flow and margins. And this year in 2022, it's it's been a pivot point for a lot of companies like us, where it's not it's growth isn't the end all be all. You you are you know we want to grow like any company, but it's a more of a balanced approach. So you need to do multiple things correctly at the same time from a margin, from a cash flow, and from a team standpoint, and not just grow for the sake of growing. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting topic because as we talked about, there are a lot of changes happening and capital has tightened up a little bit recently. And so what do you do to sort of continue to prove your value while having to also manage your cash flow and make sure that th- that you're profitable and all the things that weren't as important two years ago as they have become today? I think the most important thing is to define your value in the marketplace, like to to define who your consumer is and the value proposition that you are bringing to the market. Is that clear? Is it unique and different? Is it broadly appealing? Do you have something unique and special that's solving a problem and bringing real value to the market and being crystal clear on that? And then can you make it? And do you have the right margin structure? And then finding what your route to market is and, 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 and slowing down and thinking about all those things and getting all of those right is really, really important. And like this year was like our packet, like as an example, we want to focus on taste and indulgence, but we wanted to up. And so we're always going to be a taste forward brand, right? We're in the chocolate category and we're like, you know what, this has to be better than the original. Our whole thought is that we're going to make chocolate products that remind you of the classics, whether it's Kit Kat or Twix or M&M's or like Milky Way, but they're going to be better than the original from a taste standpoint, from an ingredient standpoint, and then from a better for you standpoint. And we're like, hold on, our packaging actually is not capturing that. So it's like time out. We got to redo our packaging and get the, and so for instance, we have a claim of 30% less sugar now that is more prominent with appetite appeal and a hero shot that is showing you 
how amazing this product is with all the buttons of whether it's non-GMO or no sugar alcohols and all those little things that you would expect, but it's really about indulgence and better for you and our packaging had to reflect that and bringing that to the marketplace this year has been really job number one. How, um, how important is the sugar claim? Because you're saying you made it bigger. And so how important is that? And how, I mean, that's been a topic of conversation for the past two years, like major. Do you think it's going to continue? I think these things have pendulums that swing, yeah. right? And so as at Nestle, when Nestle launched Skinny Cow Chocolate, mm-hmm. back in the long time ago, we launched Zero Sugar Crunch, Nestle Crunch, 15 plus years ago, probably at this point. And all those things go up and then they come back down. Yeah. Because they don't taste good. Yeah, because they don't taste good. Right. right. But people want better for you products. Yeah. So people will always want products, food that tastes good, and you will always want products that are better for you. And then it's how do you define that value proposition and how do you balance those two? Our answer to that is unique product forms in the marketplace that nobody else has that are taste number one and number two are better for you and in that order. And that's very important. Some people flip that and I'm not critiquing that. I'm just saying that is our answer and our value proposition as unique product forms that nobody else has, like a crispy wafer that will remind you of a Kit Kat. And it'll taste amazing dark chocolate with sea salt, but it'll have 30% less sugar than a Kit Kat. And that is the idea of like, holy cow, this is a product for me. Yeah. And I assume that you are doing it in that order because the appeal of the other order is way smaller, right? People who are willing to sacrifice taste for better for you. There are a lot less of those. It gets into consumer segmentation. Yes. There there are people that have diabetic needs that need zero sugar chocolate. Yep. And that is an absolutely great product for that consumer segment. And, and, and there are a lot of brands that serve that segment and they will do well with that consumer segment. There is a very broad segment of consumers that want taste or first oriented indulgent chocolate and want it better for you. Mm-hmm. And that is a different consumer segment than someone who has a diet or has a functional need to have zero zero sugar chocolate. So yes, to answer your original question, it's here to stay, but the way it is, I think it'll continue to evolve and change. Do you have any guesses on how? Well, it's always like the amount of sugar, the Mm -hmm. type of sugar, the Mm -hmm. portion control. And then when you peek underneath the hood, there's a debate around sugar alcohols. We don't use sugar alcohols. Mm -hmm. There's a diuretic effect to that. And so there's the devil's in the details sometimes with all that. Those are all aspects and and attributes of brands and products that are probably going to continue to evolve to meet the market need in terms of what consumers want. And then you got to look at trial versus repeat. A lot of people will try something, but not always repeat. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, that seems like it's crazy important. I mean, for everyone, it's one of the most important things, right? The lifetime value of a customer, yeah. if you figure that out, and that seems like the way right now, especially with all the changes. I'm wondering if you have experienced, I haven't talked a lot about this with people on the podcast, but I certainly have talked with a lot of my own brands about this. The switch and the Facebook and Instagram targeting, has that created a lot of problems for you, opportunities? It has, you know, we like a lot of other brands had a very small and nascent Amazon and online business before COVID. Again, we were, our phase as a company is still in the early, early, 
if you will, like we're a, a preteen, you know, adolescent growing up here. And yeah. so our business was small. And when COVID hit, we're like a lot of other brands, wow, we need to have a Shopify D2C website. We need to step on the gas with Amazon and invest in searching keyword terms. Well, guess what? Yeah, you can grow your business tremendously doing that. And we did several fold. You can lose a lot of money. And you can also have a lot of challenges shipping chocolate during the summer where it melts. Oh, yeah. If it's not yeah. right. And so our category and chocolate lends itself to an impulse purchase too. Yep. And we're a small brand. So how much, how many people want to buy $300, $200 worth of chocolate from a brand that they may not have tried yet? All those dynamics are super important to try to get your head around. And when we launched all that, our Shopify website was going, it was growing. And then right in the middle, when we were you know, doing that Facebook and Instagram, we're impacted in terms of how we could find new shoppers, new consumers. And so that did, that did change our opinion on the opportunity with NDC for sure. Yeah. Yeah. From a marketing perspective, what are you guys doing right now? Our marketing right now is focused on two things, our packaging and getting that right which is still a work in progress, and then shopper marketing. The vast majority of chocolate is still bought in stores yep. in retail. The vast majority. Now, we will be on Amazon, of course. We'll have a website presence. People expect that in this day and age, and you have to have that. Yeah. But I might not invest in that as much as I might invest in a, in a retail-specific shopper marketing program to drive trial and awareness within our key customers. Yeah. And that is right now what I just need to focus in and not do any more than that. I don't need a lot of ads. I don't need a tremendous amount of content, to be honest with you. There's a time and a place for that as you grow up. But right now, that's really what we're focused on. Where are you guys from? So you have, you've raised capital, obviously. Have you raised capital since you've been there? Yes, we've done a couple of rounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where are you guys now? Will you have to do it again soon? Or are you always thinking about that, what that's going to be like? For good and for bad, it's something that you're always thinking about. It's always part of the life cycle of any small to medium-sized startup. And, and it's and it's a it's a quarterly conversation around when and how to go do that. And yeah, absolutely. It's part of it's part of how we think about the business and manage it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. How does does that affect what you're doing as far as investing in the brand, thinking about I mean, obviously it has to affect when you're thinking about profitability and cash flow. We talk about it every week and every month. Cash flow, our current operations, you know, working capital requirements, our growth trajectory, and what and how much capital do we need in order to run this business? Absolutely, it's 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 something that we in versus and do we raise again or use a line of credit? And that is a absolute, you know, monthly and weekly conversation that we have. Yeah. What are the biggest challenges you feel like you guys are gonna be facing over the next couple of years? You know, well, ca- I mean, cash and, and fl- cash flow profitability is absolutely one of it. And, you know, equity financing for, you know, with, with the market change that's happened just this year and the tightening of the market is, yeah. is a big one. Supply has been, and that's probably an answer that everyone would give yes. is, is yes. just maintaining supply. We make a lot of chocolate in Europe. So while we ha- have been in stock, getting a container is more expensive. Getting it delivered, you know, on time is not easy. Getting it repacked or turned around and shipped out to a to a retailer is not easy. So finance operations, and then at the end of the day, I mean, those are the two big ones right now in the moment. At the end of the day, you are always trying to grow and and, and find your target consumer and more of them mm-hmm. in a profitable manner yep. that can grow and scale your business. But doing it 
more thoughtfully and more profitably so that you can cash flow the business and and grow it smartly and versus just grow it to grow it. Like you can slot your way for years, but then you end up paying a massive price. Right, right, right. And that's that's the whole purpose. And and I wonder if you've had, I mean, you guys seem like you're doing the distribution right. So you're not over getting over distributed where you can't support the retailers, but that feels like a risk to me with what you're talking about. Correct. And you know, like there's a conversation we're having right now with one of the largest grocery conventional uh, banners in the United States right now. And right now, if they wanted to take us chainwide, I would say, no, I would say, I want to start with one or two of your banners, or I want to start in 200 stores. I don't want to go to a thousand or 2000 doors. We want to support it, but also to drive travel and awareness. And so yeah. let's look at the data. Where, where, where does, where do you over index with better for you and organic and where does your natural chocolate work and where does it not work and let's not just go into as many doors as possible even if you wanted to take it we wouldn't want to do that right now i'm curious like if you had that conversation with a retailer would they respect it would they would they walk away that's changed a lot so a year ago i think that would have been considered a crazy conversation yeah both from an investor standpoint, from a team standpoint and from the retailer standpoint you don't want to go into a thousand doors now they're like great idea. Let's walk before we run. And everybody is now saying that. Our team is saying, our operations teams, thank you. Our investors are like, that's a really good idea. Let's go prove this out in their top 100 or 200 doors before you scale. And I think the retailer is like, you know what? I don't, I don't want to have all this inventory sitting around if it, if it doesn't, if it works in a couple hundred doors and it doesn't work in a couple hundred over here. And so I think everybody's pivoting in this, in this manner for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you want the brand to be in three years? It's a really great question. I, you know, I want to go from, I would say a relatively, you know, we're like a, you know, we're in a small pond right now. We are in the whole foods natural set mm-hmm. in, that, in that channel and growing and doing well and generating a lot of excitement and awareness in that, you know, but there is a big, big opportunity to just even from a category standpoint, Natural and better for you chocolate is call it a billion dollars in as a category out of maybe 20 billion. Yeah. It's like 5%. This category should be 10, 10 to 12 to 15% of the total. So there's a billion dollar opportunity just for natural chocolate to basically double in size. And I need to place and we need to be where that consumption is going to go in the next five to seven to 10 years. And, and it takes times. These things happen slowly in the moment and then very fast. If you yeah. like pull out and like, Oh my God, in, in three to five years, this is what just happened in the quarter to quarter, a year to year, it can be in small increments and change, but it, but it adds up pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think it's going to take for you to get there? You know, a great team. We have an amazing team of very talented people that are dynamic and flexible and adapt to the opportunity at hand. So it, it always starts with our team. It, then it gets into operations and finance. Mm-hmm. Can we fund the growth? Right. Do we have the right partners to grow? And then it starts with the right retail being the key partner that ends up bringing it to the consumer. Do Are we having those right conversations? And are we doing it thoughtfully? And it's almost in that order, like getting your team right. Do you yep. have the right people yep. in the right seats? Because if you don't have that, you're going to start making a lot of mistakes. And do you have the cash in the operations? And I think 
for me, that's like something that we've been thinking and talking a lot about more now up front versus a year or two or three ago, maybe, you know, you would have said, oh, let's go race and capture this opportunity and push for this conversation and push for this and hope that we can make it or hope that we can ship it. And, and you kind of figure it out as you go, you kind of need to flip that order. In order. I think that's really interesting because that's the change I'm seeing with with most of, especially when I'm talking with investors and people who are, who are helping other people raise capital, like it feels like that is really important. You can't just cross your fingers and hope that when you scale, your cost of goods will go down enough so that you're making money. Like it feels like those are the really important things that are happening right now versus figure it out and wing it. hundred percent. In fact, that's my other big learning. We're kind of going through all my learning lessons over the last four, four years. It's, it's margins. Yes. You cannot rely on scale and growth to solve your margin structure. Yep. And I know that's so simple to say, easy to say, but in a lot of, and I think a lot of people are getting very sober on that idea too, is you need to price it early pricing that lever and getting your margin structure right now versus saying, oh, when I double this business, I will renegotiate my contract pricing or I will get the equipment required to lower my cost per unit, my unit economics, and I will fix my unit economics this year. It's like, whoa, time out. No, right now my unit economics have to be right. That has to make it harder though at the beginning, right? To Way harder. Yeah, because that's some of the stuff that you cross your fingers and you know when you get a really good investor or when you get a really good partner or when you get scale, those things will happen. But it must be really hard at the beginning to have to know that that's going to work for you. Yeah, it puts the onus earlier in the curve. Yeah. You get the proof of concept and the unit economics right earlier. Yeah. Easy to say and hard to do, but that is absolutely what has to be done first. Then you got to figure out how you're going to make it. Can you make it reliably with high quality? Mm -hmm. Then can it scale? Do you have enough capacity to scale? If it's the right unit economics and it's the right quality, and then is that reliable? And then can you scale it? Okay, great. Then you can take on capital and go grow a business. These are all learning lessons. I'm not saying we did this in the right order, but this is what I have learned and what we are doing now. Yeah. Well, nobody did it in the right order because it wasn't the order five minutes ago. Right. Right. It wasn't the order. And now it's like, what do you attribute that to? Like, what do you attribute the tightening up of the the capital belt, if you will, to? Too many small brands, too much innovation or too many products, too many small brands chasing the same thing And and a lot of capital allowing that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You know, you mentioned um, when we talked last time that you you produce your product in Europe, all of it? 90% of what we sell today is made in Europe. About 10% of what we make here is in the US. Was that always true? Is that? No, no, that's relatively new in the last just couple of years. That was that big pivot oh. from a supply chain standpoint. Yep. Uh, oh, we have, okay. Yeah, we used to make everything here in the US. And that is the preferred strategy from a logistics yeah. standpoint, from a route to market. Yeah. But Coman, so we make hard to hard to make classic forms like a, like making a crispy wafer with cream and chocolate and salt is not easy. Making a cookie yeah. bar with salted caramel is not easy. Like these are, but these products don't exist in the better for you space. Well, there's a reason why. 
there, there's a capabilities piece of this that 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 we bring to the marketplace. But I had to go find that in Europe. And there's a tremendous capabilities and high quality ingredients and and also an appetite to really lean in here that I have found. And so we we've partnered with some phenomenal partners over there and we and, and we created and then we created there and then uh, bring it over. And it's absolutely meeting a need in the market, but that figuring that out has certainly not been easy. When you say there's an opportunity to lean in, what what do you mean by that? Can you elaborate on that? In terms of what? The supply. I I think you were talking about manufacturing in Europe. Oh, there are some phenomenal partners that, that, again, some of them I know from my Nestle days, that have capabilities Mm -hmm. that are making phenomenal high quality products. By the way, everything in uh, Europe is not GMO. Right. But yeah. Yep. And chocolate is much more sophisticated in Europe. Yes, it is I agree with that. high end gourmet, amazing dark chocolate. So the ingredients are phenomenal. The, also the capabilities and making different types of products, whether it's filled or whether it's enrobed or whether it's a crispy wafer or, or you know, and so on. The capabilities are robust and they're maybe a little bit more flexible too in terms of MLQs. And so figuring out all the puzzle pieces there, sometimes a U.S. command might want giant scale or might want much higher MOQs with less capability. And mm-hmm. so they might be able to do one thing for you, but they can't do the three or four things that you yeah. need at the right price, at the right MLQ. And then getting them to do it in a, whether it's organic or non-GMO, might be very challenging. And it might come at a tremendous cost versus in Europe is just like, oh, well, of course, that's what we're going to do. And so the mindset, and then they want access here to the, to the whole foods and to the U S market. So there is this really interesting dynamic of like, oh, they wanted to lean in and enter this market when we help them. And so we designed the product and we create the formula and then we leverage their technical expertise. And, and that's where that magic happened. That's awesome. I, I didn't ask you about the name. I'm curious to know where the name came from. You know, I didn't start the company. Yeah, it's a it's a phenomenal name. So there's an insight here. So when you have, so do you have like family at home that where you've brought home like like you know chocolate and then you've had to hide it from them? Of course. Right. So yeah. this happens during big occasions, like whether it's Halloween or Christmas or Easter, but even just every day, you'll bring something home and you'll maybe share it at first but then there's going to be one or two pieces left and you'll hide it in your in your nightstand or you'll hide it in the drawer or you'll and so that becomes your little secret that's like you have a little secret hiding somewhere it's your indulgence it's also like something that you want to keep away from your kids or your spouse or something like that and so little secrets chocolates is we have a tagline sharing optional ah nice which chocolate is always meant to be shared of course it's tongue-in-cheek and people share chocolate, but it's also like, hey, well, hold on, this is for me though, too. This is so, extra special. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. So much good stuff here. Anything else? Like, do you have advice you'd give, like knowing what you know now, people who are sort of a little, a few steps behind you as far as brand development, what, what advice would you give them? That's a great question. I think the unit economics and margin mm-hmm. is the conversation. I probably could not say that enough as number one. And if that isn't right, it leads to a whole host of issues down the line. Yeah, I would say also having a really great product, like building a brand is important. The brand is bigger than the product for sure, but having a phenomenal product is crucial. You can use smoke and mirrors and social media and advertising to create a brand, 
But if that product doesn't resonate, if it isn't addressing a need, if it isn't, if it isn't unique and broadly appealing and tastes great and all those, and, and if it's not better for you and all those attributes of a, of a product, the consumer will eventually move to a different product to meet that need. Yeah. And so making sure you're very crystal clear on your value proposition, like really dial that in. And that takes time. And if you aren't sure about it today, you sometimes iterate. You might launch a product and then discontinue it. And getting your portfolio probably tighter, too many SKUs, like now getting into a tactical like recommendation, we had too many SKUs. How many selling SKUs do you really need? Not a lot. So How many do you guys have? We now have 11. How many did you have? Over 20. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot to support. It's a lot to market. It's a lot to, yeah, it's a lot. Especially and in the beginning. Especially in the beginning. So you have too many SKUs that you have too much working capital that mm-hmm. are, they're not, if you do a turf analysis, the first flavor sells 80%, the next flavor sells another yep. 10%, and on and on and on. So you probably need a couple SKUs to start. You don't need five flavors. You need two or three, no more than like three flavors. Things like that. All those, and then like the team, like getting a great team and having a great team and finding people that are passionate and and are here for more, you know, than just a job, but really love the products and the brand and things like that, like really do matter that are great to work with and are, you know, can can adapt and be flexible is, is a whole nother side of the equation. Does that matter more for you at this company than it did at Nestle? Yeah, it for sure. And there is like, I have lifelong friends at Nestle that I still call to this day for help and advice. And I'm so grateful. And I, and I would do it all over again. And Nestle was a juggernaut. It was a tech is this massive, massive machine that just brought in huge recruiting classes and you were signing up for the bigger, like the bigger thing. And then, Oh, you happen to work in beverage. You happen to work in chocolate. Um, and Butterfinger has been around for a hundred (laughs) years. So you might work on Butterfinger, but that's not why you're at Nestle. When you work at Little Secrets Chocolate or any small company, you are there for that product and for that brand. And you very highly likely are probably eating and consuming it. Yeah, right. And I'm bringing it home. I mean, I give it to my girls. I mean, I have three girls and I bring it and I give it to them all the time. And that was an insight. I wasn't bringing home some of the products I made at Nestle. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't an indictment on that. It's just, I was like noticing that my wife wasn't feeding them there. She's going to Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or whatever, or Costco and bringing that home. And I was like, holy cow, I need to like adapt my career to this, to this changing consumer behavior. And, and yeah. so anyways, that gets back to the team and the people you work with and, and why that's so important. Yeah. And then one last question for you, when you guys are raising capital, how important are the partners you're looking at that they be aligned with you guys? And it's not, is it about just raising capital and having money to do what you need to do? Or is it more than that? No, it's a lot more than that. I mean, especially when you're small, having partners that can help. We have phenomenal partners in the last several years that lean in, that help you get into the guts of the business. We just had actually a working session last week where we met for literally five hours and we ordered lunch in. Yeah. And we got into our demand and supply planning. We got into our forecast. We got into planning for actually next year in 2023. And they are at the table with us asking like really hard questions. It's not a... and it's not easy. It is very value added to have, to have some people at the table that have, you know, done this before. And, you know, I think for me as a, for me as a CEO, it's like, I need to like listen and hear the questions they're asking and understand the question behind the question sometimes. But if you don't have that, then you're kind of on your own a little bit and capital, capital plus experience 
is a huge differentiator for sure. Yeah, interesting. Well, I really appreciate all your time and advice. I think it's great. And I'm really excited to see where the brand goes. I mean, I think it's an important brand. I agree with you. There aren't too many of them around that actually taste really good. I think that's the big challenge. And you're trying to make small improvements and you you don't want to give up some of that stuff. So that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.